0: Uh, I think most of the people that are listening will probably know who you are, but I think, well, how do we get us started off now, Zach? We don't even have a kind of a a methodology for how we start these off.
1: I would say we've already started, so just just dive in. (laughs) There
0: there we go. (laughs) All right, James, how are you? You've been all over the country, uh, America. You were up in Alberta not even that long ago. You've been tweeting a lot about Canadian politics, Alberta politics, uh, global politics. You're a busy man. Uh, I know that a lot of my listeners will be very interested in how you're doing because they really enjoyed coming out to hear you a thousand in Edmonton and Calgary. So how are you? Are you exhausted? What's going on in James world? Well, I'm pretty good, actually. I was exhausted, but um,
2: we kind of got to move. I had a, when I When you brought me to Alberta it was the beginning of a very busy travel schedule that persisted for about two months. And um, at the end of that, I was fairly well wrecked. Uh, I was extremely exhausted. But since then, um, I've had a fairly, well, it's still busy, but a fairly moderate schedule. I've been keeping more busy at home, uh, splitting my time, you know, between that and the road and getting kind of all over the place. But uh, I'm well, uh, I'm motivated. I'm about to release a book. I'm about, I'm in the middle of writing another one, just like getting it going. So uh, things are going well.
0: Well, let's start with this new book. I believe it's called "The Queering of the American Child," uh, but that's not maybe the one you're about to release. I think is that, that one is the one release. that, no, that, that is, is the one. Sorry, that yeah. is the one. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your thesis in that book, and then we can use that to springboard into Alberta politics, Canadian politics, and the impact that you've already had. Uh, on both of those and what you see happening in the world.
2: Yeah. Uh, okay. So we obviously we called it the American child. So sorry, candidate Canadians, because you actually are doing it worse than we are, but we had to come up with a clever title. And um, the thesis of the book is and just to be clear, I am the secondary author on this book. I'm not the primary author. Um a man named Logan Lansing, who is from Wisconsin is, is leading the charge on this book. And, Therefore, it's very readable. It's easier to read than anything I've written, uh, which people <laughs> will want to know. <laughs> but his thesis or our thesis is that queer theory is the doctrine of a cult, a very destructive cult. its it, it shouldn't be thought of otherwise. It's not an academic theory. Uh, it is the, the doctrine of a cult. And that cult targets children, and it has in, insinuated itself into our education systems so that it's not just media or social media or social influence but in fact the schools themselves are bringing children further into this cult not just the schools but also the medical establishments so uh those institutions that should be the stopgap that prevents our children from being groomed into a cult are no longer the stopgaps and in fact they're they're accelerators for this problem and so the book Opens up by explaining that queer theory, in fact, is a cult or the doctrine of a cult, how that cult works. And then it gives a number of examples in schools and then starts to just lay it out. What is queer theory? What is critical education? How did they come together to create queer education? What does that do to your kids? And then uh, we go through in tremendous detail in the second half of the book how this actually works in practice and what it's accomplishing, why they're targeting children, and why we have to fight back to protect our kids.
0: In your uh, speeches in Edmonton and Calgary, you actually brought a lot of this up and you used a really great example of a lesson that was being used. I believe it was an Indiana teacher whistle blew on this that they were teaching people to have a methodology of teaching, not a curriculum, and that methodology was how you indoctrinate. That really struck people in Alberta. I know it gets brought up to me all the time now. A, would you mind kind of sharing... Uh, how that part of it works, because I think that's kind of the key that unlocks it in people's minds. We're not finding this stuff in our curriculum as much. Of course, it is in the curriculum that's being exposed, but that's not what we have to worry about most. Why don't you just kind of share with our listeners how they're doing this through methodology?
2: Yeah, that's right. It is a methodology. So that's designed actually so that the curriculum itself can be completely non-controversial. And what the teacher who told me about this particular example i relate the example in a moment what she actually said was by the end of the training that they took for professional development there in like i said indiana which is not famously that uh progressive um she could do this same methodology to anything you give any content any academic content whatsoever and she could transform it into a social justice or a critical marxist lesson and here's how it worked Uh, The specific example she would use in her talks that I I got permission to borrow from her and that I've used relentlessly and told in in Alberta was uh, this is a word problem from second grade mathematics, and it's Johnny is riding in the car on his way to the amusement park with his mom and dad. The amusement park is 50 miles away. They've already driven 20 miles. How much further do they have to go? And in this case, I actually told it wrong, but the answer is 30. Usually, <laughs> I set it up so the answer is 20. But you can figure <laughs> out that the answer is, is you know, the result of, in this case, 50 minus 30 miles equals 20 miles or vice versa, or whatever I said. And so, um, I guess it's 50 minus 20 equals 30 miles of so the way I set it up. Okay, so the point of teaching mathematics, as I used to be a math educator, uh, to children in this case, would be how do you learn to take the subtraction problem out of the pr- the paragraph, the, out of the, the, the word problem? How do you get the subtraction problem out of that? Solve the subtraction problem and then relate the answer back in words. That's the actual educational objective, the math pedagogy of teaching word problems, in this case, in the second grade level. What these teachers are taught is that what they have to do is uh, engage the students they have to get the students interested so they'll want to solve the math problem so to avoid the kid raising his hand and saying why do we have to learn this and then on the excuse of engagement what they're taught is to ask children about the words that appear in the word problem themselves to make them more interested hey kids who's ever been to an amusement park kids know what amusement parks are they get excited some of them have been some of them have not because they're seven years old in second grade in america And some kids will raise their hand and some kids won't. And what's happened now is that she's used the excuse, the teacher has used the excuse of the word amusement park in a word problem for math to create a difference within the classroom, a social difference. Some kids have and some kids have not. And the trick is to shift from the math lesson to talking about the difference. Oh, wow, guys, that's really not fair some of you have got to go and some of you haven't what are some reasons why some people get to go and some people don't and then the teachers are taught to have the kids continue to offer answers until they say something they can turn into a productive lesson until somebody says something like not everybody can afford it which opens up the door to talk about oh wow you're right It's really expensive. How can we make it so more people could afford it? How can we make it more fair so more people can go to the amusement park? And you get to talk about – you get to lead the kids into suggesting that the government should pay for it. It should be free, something like that. And in other words, you get to have a discussion about socialism and socialist policies. Now, a lot of these topics are actually – these topics are actually outlawed in many U.S. states already. You're not supposed to be able to talk about political – Uh, topics in the classroom, even so, there is a workaround, which is that in almost every state, teachers are empowered to address what are called spontaneous utterances by the class. So if a child says it, the teacher has the right to explain, to go along with whatever the child brought up. So if the child says, make rich people pay for it or make the government pay for it, oh yeah, we could. She might not be able to talk about socialism on her own, but once the child says make government pay for it, she can say, well, that's called socialism and here's how good socialism is and here's how it works because it's now a spontaneous utterance that she gets to take a moment to explain because a child brought it up, not her. This methodol- this methodology is called uh, the generative themes method that was developed by a Marxist educator named Paulo Ferreri uh, in Brazil who in his own words says that he derived his methodology from the uh, thought reform methods of Mao Zedong in China. And it says it right, I think it's like page 46 or something like that in Pedagogy of the Oppressed, his most famous book. Uh, He's like straight up, this is the method that was used by Mao Zedong in the Chinese Cultural Revolution. (laughs) Well,
0: let's let's go into that right there because you also talked about that in your talks in Alberta. And why are they trying to seize our education system? And why are they trying to queer the American child? To go back to Well, the there's book. a
2: couple of reasons um, to seize the education system. And by the way, with that example, I said, you know, I went to socialism off of amusement park, but you could go into some kid could have said, my parents won't let me. So now you get to question parental authority. You could have focused on mom and dad instead and you have conversations about sexuality in this case or uh, feminism for single moms. Or you could bring up – off of car, you could be into having environmental conversations. So there's in that case five or six easy go-to political conversations straight out of – a math question about cars and amusement parks. So, this is how insidious that methodology is. And when you see this problem, and say you get the textbook or required or you know, demand to see it, and you see it, and you say, Well, okay, there's no problem here. The teachers are being taught to bring up the subjects to prime the students to generate the conversation. That's why they're called generative themes. And that's been worked into virtually all of our education. So the problem becomes not necessarily the curriculum, but the teachers have been trained to misuse the curriculum. What Paulo Freire said is that you use the academic material as a mediator to political knowledge. So it's just an excuse to have political conversations, in other words. But they go after the children for a few reasons. One of the main reasons is that it's a very simple formula, is if you get the children, you get the future. Um, and so if you go backwards from that formula a little bit, if you get the teachers, then you get the children. And if you get the children, you get the future. Well, how do you get the teachers? Well, you start at the colleges of education. And if you get the colleges of education and their professional development, then you get the teachers and the teachers are doing these methods. Then you get get the children through the methods and then you have the future. So in other words, uh, this works out to be a two-pronged strategy in terms of getting the children ideologically on board, or maybe a three-pronged, you want to change the children's values. They are very deliberately changing the children's values to match with critical theory, to match with socialism, to match with their environmental agenda, which is still presented through this socialist approach, to get them to value degrowth, to have existential fear that uh, if we don't all do the environmental thing that the government says, then the world will end and we'll have no future. They want all of that as, as, as the child's upbringing. That's literally to transform the child's values uh, away from traditional values, away from family values, away from religious values, away from, in your case, Canadian values that you've had literally as long as Canada has lasted uh, up until about 10 years ago into this new value set that's meant to drive their revolution. Another reason you go after the kids, not just because they're impressionable uh, and very fruitful for this, is because uh, you can mold the children into being activists by changing those values. So you change their values and what the, and that will change both their behaviors and what they demand out of society. And they're explicit. Klaus Schwab has written very clearly in the great narrative for a better future, for example, his book from 2022, where he says explicitly that the youth are going to demand and will protest if you don't have workplaces that have sustainable values, inclusive values, sustainable and inclusive supply chains, the whole DEI, ESG, sustainable development goal, agenda. If you aren't doing that, he said the young people will protest you. They'll revolt. They won't work for you. They won't buy from you. They won't uh, support your, your initiatives or your company or whatever else. And so they become activists. This is what... He created a red guard by radicalizing the kids to his – what he called Mao Zedong thought. That's literally what <laughs> it was called in China, Mao Zedong thought.
0: <laughs> and they we literally call called it
2: brainwashing woke. too, right? <laughs> yeah, they literally called it brainwashing. She now in, in Mandarin, uh, which means wash brain because uh, you have to wash out the old bad ideology and replace it with what we call today the equity lens. And uh, I mean you can go seamlessly back and forth between Mao's literal language and – Contemporary language, Mao Zedong thought, or you know, intersectional positionality, or whatever. It's just seamless woke. <laughs> it's
0: all right there, and and the crazy part is it worked in China. So we know that they they know it, they know it can work. That's this right. Isn't like this isn't an experiment.
2: That's right. Because the two things that Mao did with his education that we're seeing happen in our education are the creation of this radicalized youth that's going to go out and tear apart your country and demand change. They're not educated. They can't read. They can't do math. They don't know history. And it's very important that they don't know history because they have to think that history was all bad and therefore needs to be changed. So they have to believe those lies. So they can't know history for real. And then they're going to go out and demand change and, in fact, destroy Denounce their country, denounce their elders, denounce their churches, denounce their parents, denounce their former teachers, denounce everything that's racist, sexist, transphobic, has bourgeois values to go back to the Mao side. It's just super, super simple. But it's to create a youth rebellion that will transform the entire society from the bottom. And the second is what is come to be called the long march through the institutions. And so that's um, – that name came from Rudy Deutschky, who was a Marxist in the 60s, and uh, it was implemented following the theory of Antonio Gramsci and the practice of Maslidong on purpose. And it was encouraged by the biggest neo-Marxists of the day, including Herbert Marcuse, who wrote about it explicitly in those terms along March to the institutions – but the question is, in an advanced economy, how do you get inside the institutions? Well, the institutions, not to put anybody down because that's not the intention, the institutions here are not being a garbage man. The institutions are not being you know, an everyday worker. It's not even really necessarily being a farmer. The institutions are the professions, the professional career, like the, the white-collar jobs. And so you want lawyers who are woke. You want par- like parliamentarians who are woke. You want- uh, Accountants. A- everything, yes. Accountants, teachers, doctors. doctors. Yeah. You need all of that professional credentialism that an advanced economy actually depends on to be captured by woke. So how do you get the doctors to be woke? Doctors go to medical school. So you send woke activists into medical schools and you send them up through the ranks and they work overwhelmingly. They don't actually – you ever seen a woke person when they they get into a profession? They do as little of their profession as possible and as much as they can of getting administrative positions, executive positions, anything they can do to where they get to start setting the policy. Look, for example, at Harvard University with Claudine Gay. She was president of Harvard. She climbs to the very top. Anything else you want to say about her, you can talk about the plagiarism. The woman had only published like 12 or 17 or something like that academic papers in her whole career. And she's – I mean that's usually hundreds of papers. But she's only done like 12 because she – and she plagiarized those. So it doesn't even matter. Her career didn't matter careerism mattered to her climbing the ranks so that she could exercise power over others and over departments is what matters to these people so they get into medicine I went to actually grad school with a woman who was not a particularly you know wonderful mathematician and she's become one of the most vigorous activists to transform the American mathematical society the AMS that's what she does 90 percent of her time as a math I don't know if she had her PhD or only a master's degree, but as a a math professional, 90% of her time is not spent at all doing mathematics. 90% of her time is trying to change the social professional environment in which mathematicians work. And that's how they always do. They do very little of the thing that they were trained to do. They use the credential to do a lot of social activism. And that is by definition, the long march to the institutions. So if you want to get the doctor's, You have to send Wokies up the doctor path, and then they start working to become, you know, chair people within the American Medical Association or the Canadian medical uh, equivalent. They start working their way up and start telling other doctors how they have to do medicine. They start working their way into organizations like WPATH, which are doing very activist approaches to medicine. The same thing in law. And eventually you get them changing the the exams, you get them changing, you know, the National Bar Association in the United States or American Bar Association is, you know, gone almost completely woke. The next thing you have woke judges or you, uh, lawyers and then woke judges and the whole judiciary transforms. It's the same model. You get the te- schools of education. You get the teachers. You get the teachers. You get the kids. You get the kids. You get the future. Here it's. You get the medical students. Eventually you get medicine. You get the law students. Eventually you get law. You get the media students. They go out and produce propaganda for their entire careers, whether it's news media, whether it's entertainment media, whether it's Hollywood. And it's all, you know, I was actually presented with something somebody sent me on my Instagram about an hour ago. And it's this video of this girl and she's, this is my day. And she's all cute and running around and making breakfast. And the next thing you know, she's in her class and it's representation it's a gender studies class of representation of women in media and all of a sudden it's like oh my gosh and she's going into this whole thing that's like this total woke nonsense at boston university which is training her to look at the media as insufficiently propagandist for the woke and so they understood that if you capture the schools which means capturing the young people as they come up the pipeline then you're going to catch what comes out of the pipeline eventually, and that was called Long March. So they go after kids because they're impressionable and can have their value shaped. They go after kids because um, they can create a youth rebellion that pressures society and families to adopt these new values. And they go after kids in order to send them up the pipeline and colonize all of our institutions from uh, from their educational experiences. And these are the primary tactics. And like I said, they're 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 just ripped straight out of Mao. These are these are what Mao did. The Long March to the Institutions was Rudy Deutschky saying, "Holy crap!" in nineteen sixty six, which was when Mao launched his Cultural Revolution. What is Mao Zedong doing right, and how do we do it here? And that's what it was named after, and that's what it was for.
0: I mean, the Long March. It's literally referring to his Long March with his Communist armies.
2: That's right. That's exactly right. And Mao did a long marches through the institutions as well. The first thing oh, yeah. he captured <laughs> was, the, was the education apparatuses. He turned uh, high schools and universities into revolutionary high schools and universities modeled after his military party schools, which were meant to take somebody that they conscripted, uh, you know, maybe at officer level and turn them into a socialist robot as fast as possible, even under military conditions. And he just retooled at higher education, high school and college to to create what he called revolutionary intellectuals uh, in the same exact model, which was complete milieu control, what we would call social emotional learning today.
0: So I think that was one of the best summaries you've ever given, and I've heard you give a lot of summaries. So we're basically what we're up against as communists. You've talked about that here in Alberta before. Once mm-hmm. we expose what they are, it becomes very obvious, like you pointed out, they're not interested in their vocations, which would be being a mathematician or being a doctor. They're interested in power and mm-hmm. wielding power over others. That's been happening in Canada for a lot of Canadians in a very real way, even from our prime minister down to you know the local shop owner who wouldn't let you come in unless you showed them your medical status. It got really bad here in, in Canada. But you came up here and you saw Uh, at least people that are fighting back. What was your impression of that? And now, after you've been here, a mere four or five months later, we have the premier of our province uh, putting out the most extensive policy I've seen in North America yet on the issues that you're talking about. So give us your reflection on your time here and then what you think of that policy. You and I have talked about it privately, but I think I know that a lot of Albertans want to hear your thoughts on it.
2: Well, the truth is, um, as far as my time up there and it, I, I was inspired by the energy in Canada, the desire, the confidence even, you know, under the pressures that you guys have from your federal government and even the pressure of Canada and what it's become over the last decade, just the utter confidence. I remember talking um, with a guy and I was like, you know, I just feel like Canada's really in trouble. And he looked at me dead dead in the eyes as, as, as you know confident as a man can be and said oh we'll get it back there was no like weird arrogance there's no like getting like it was just confident we'll get it back and then you know of course large crowds turned out the energy was high the engagement was high the interest was high the follow-up was great um canada was really inspiring i've gone around i don't know more than a dozen states now and told them that you are uh, you you albertans are are putting them to shame the energy, <laughs> the desire to make a difference and they really need to be looking up there and seeing what's going on and taking some some inspiration and some heart. You guys aren't running away, you're not uh you're, you know, you're not cowering in fear. You're actually turning around and trying to make something happen and you're doing it with strategy, you're doing it intelligently and it's a model to be replicated all over the all over the world really, all over the free world at least, what's left of the freedom in it. And I I say this everywhere. I've been telling audiences State after state after state, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Utah, Arizona, Texas. Where else have I said this since? I mean, Florida. I'm trying to think of all the states that I've been talking <laughs> yeah. about it in. Well, I know I you did at least 30,
0: 30 speeches after you came to Alberta that I'm aware of.
2: Yeah, it's been <laughs> yeah. a lot. I mean, I can't keep them all straight. Michigan was one. Uh, I mean, I've Michigan looks like it
0: could change. Did you see that lately? I like, do. What's going on there? You got? I yeah. want to hear that. That's just political nerd, but I want to hear what's going on in Michigan.
2: Well, so that's my experience in Alberta was a ton of inspiration that I've turned around. You the state to Washington, I've told them up there, you know, that's one of your neighbors, kind of, you know, try to get them, get them moving in these directions as well. So it was truly inspiring as far as this policy. It's extremely exciting as well. It's um, exactly the kind of step that needs to be taken. It's way past time for this step to be taken, even if it falls, it's, forced a conversation, it's forced the issue, and in the meantime, it's protecting children from what can only be described as a religious cult that's out to destroy them so that it can turn them into those activists that that Mao Zedong needed um, in China in the 60s and 70s. And so it's an incredibly important move. The only thing that even is, well, I would say similar, it's virtually identical, is the Protect Kids CA movement in California, which is headed up by a woman named Erin Friday and that is you know you're not getting anywhere with the California the california legislature or the the governor and so they're trying to circumvent that and take it back to democracy back to the people and put exactly those same three issues directly on the california ballot but that's the closest parallel to this Degree of, uh, you know, kind of strident action to protect children uh, and protect parents and their rights that we've seen yet in North America. So good for Danielle Smith for doing this, and good for Albertans and good for Canada. Uh, even if the, I saw the prime minister doesn't look happy about it one bit. He's <laughs> no. very upset. No. He's very mad. Well, Poor we let, we let, uh, well,
1: can't we help le- himself. well we love to watch him sweat, Dan. so so it's all good. <laughs> yes, that's,
2: we do
0: too. He, he's the most hated politician in Canadian history, as far as I've been able uh, to tell. That makes in sense. In fact, to a me. poll a poll just came out. He's now there's not a single province that he's leading in. This would be like Biden losing California or New York. Uh, but so, right now, he is in third place in Quebec, which is his home province.
2: Wow, and uh, what was it that just happened? He went to some shop, and the shop got protested. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> he's the
2: prime minister. It got
0: like attacked. It got attacked <laughs> like just ruthlessly. No, it's uh, he's going down. He's going down. But I, I want uh, some ref- like policy level, high level, but, but but easily communicated to the listeners. What is it about the policies that you like? What do you not like? You and I have talked about how it was framed. Danielle really came at it with a very, um, I don't know, conciliatory, loving, comforting, yeah. you know, wanting people to know that she's caring. Uh, you and I both thought that was a bit of a mistake, but I think a lot of people seem to have liked it in Canada at least. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the policies
2: actually I'm pretty happy with. I would love to see the ability to expand the the protections it says 16 and up on the one i think that getting that all the way up to 18 would be ideal but uh i get it like i'll take i'll take this this win other than that the policies themselves i have very little to quibble with they're very solid policies they're very uh understanding i'm a little concerned about this recruitment of gender doctors to to because gender doctor is like literally a um oxymoron it's like gender butcher uh but bringing them to alberta but I kind of get the political give and take game you have to play. And I was, when I watched her video, I think I texted you immediately. I was like, I can't help her. I can't help her. Too soft. <laughs>
0: I remember. You're like, she's done. She's finished. She's done. <laughs> and
2: I underestimated Canadian nice because the Canadian scene, I thought she was going to get chewed up. I knew she would by the left, right? I knew that was coming. But I, if she were an American and put that forth, in America, so this is a, dis- a distinction between our countries. Um, the conservatives would have been so disappointed in how how soft and you know how heavily she used the language, the gender affirming, and the we really recognize you and see you and we care about that. The conservatives would would not have rallied to her defense. They would have left her hanging out on a limb. The rhinos would have gone after her for uh, for for being against trans people, and she would have got attacked. With very little defense, but in Canada it seems that you are a you are a distinct place, and it's like it's like doing business in Utah, you know, political business in Utah is also tricky because the Utahns have a very different view of kindness and politeness. And I I'll be frank with you, I don't know maybe it's in Canada too, but and I've seen some of the stuff coming after you and coming after her, but like in Utah. These are some of the meanest people I've ever seen in my entire life. But they say it under like a, a doctrine of kindness. So they say it's so viciously passive-aggressive and nasty. But in the politest language you can imagine. <laughs> but it's so yep. sick. But that's a diver, That's a digression. I think that I am glad that it went the way that it did. And I'm glad that it resonated with Canadians and it made the point. It put the left in a nasty bind. It's literally impossible to call Daniel Smith. A transphobe, my approach is slightly different, but maybe that's because I'm not just an American, but I'm a root and tootin' Southerner. And just to really get the controversy going, I found out the other day I am seventh cousin to Robert E. Lee. <laughs> <laughs> a truly great American. Yes. <laughs> and so, like, I have a slightly different tack, which is that I'm going to go full blast and then just not wither When the flames come, just not give in. But that probably, honestly, in reflection would not have worked very well for Daniel Smith up in in, in Alberta. And it's really um, twisted her opposition into a, a tremendous bind. It, it, it will make all of the things that come at her look foolish. And when the government, if Trudeau or or the parliament tries to bring something down on her, they are going to look extraordinarily um irrational and um out of sorts and in fact tyrannical so it's it's put them in a much bigger bind than my uh, preferred approach would have so i am very happy people say i never admit when i'm wrong i'm very happy to have been wrong i would i'm happy you were be wrong too. <laughs> to, to show like to publish the text messages like she's done she's yeah, destroyed over. i can't help her it's over I, remember, I, I w- remember
0: getting those, and I was like, oh, no, because I thought you were probably right, but no, it turned out we were wrong. No, both it turns wrong. out Canadians
2: are a slightly different breed, and bless you and your niceness for it, and I'm glad you're also – I mean, I saw some of the – I see some of the stuff these Canadians say in, under a uh, doctrine of niceness. It's not as nasty as the Utah's, but man, mm. it's – like, that's not nice, guys. That's That's like some fake, polite – it, i had this whole philosophical digression the other day thinking about it and I was just like people will always be really mean they're just gonna
0: channel it through whatever oh oh whatever you know, social yeah, yeah, you have exactly i mean the cruelty it, is the same even look at how the i i feel like the cruelty that the woke are imposing on children that they and they they just rename it Right? Oh, yeah. to, to, to teach a child that they're born into the wrong body. can can you even imagine I can't even imagine the the psychological damage that you would have to endure to truly believe that for some reason you'd be born in the wrong body. It's i I do feel really sorry for trans people because that is a horrible thing to believe, but it's also evil thing to teach. yeah.
2: imagine teaching an eleven year old and this eleven year old, you know, like gender ideology, and then this eleven year old's at home laying in bed one night, let's say it's a Christian kid. Right. So maybe they're not like the best kid at church, but you know, whatever. They they go to church. Their parents take them. We'll just do the whole thing. And then they hear this at school and they start wondering and they go home and they're literally laying in bed. Of course, they're not telling anybody. And they're like, did God mess up when he made me? And like, that's the thought that's spinning around in their little 11 year old <laughs> head when they're trying to go to bed. I mean, I had a friend when I was younger who was raised in an extremely strict fundamentalist religious situation. And so he kept, like, trying to get saved, and he never felt like anything changed. Like, he would go get saved, and then there was, like, the celebration at the church. And then he'd go home, and he's like, I basically still feel the same. Like, he didn't feel transformed. And so because he didn't feel transformed, he's like 10, right? So it's not like, don't come down hard on the kid. But he thought he must have done it wrong. And so he was like twisting himself into knots, like crying all night long, like stressed out. And he would go and try to get saved again. And the pastors were super confused at his church. But he just was like, he didn't feel like he'd been transformed. So you can get an idea. Kids can latch onto an idea and just really tear themselves up over it. And imagine it's like that God messed up making you. Yeah. <laughs> you put yeah, you put that your you were soul born in the, in wrong, the wrong body. body. Oh <laughs> yeah. And this is a truly disastrous thing but this is i want to make it really clear to people that this cruelty is intentional so i actually learned a lot doing this book the queering of the american child a lot of times you know i don't have the privilege of somebody else sending me a manuscript where they've come at an an issue from their own angle it was informed by mine you know logan lansing's the the primary author and it's clear he had been you know It had been informed by some of the things that I've said, but he did his own research. He did his own homework, and he brought his own issues to the table, and he brought up this – he had actually sent me the book, and I had skimmed some of it, but it was like really stupid, so I didn't read much of it. This book about queer education by a guy named Kevin Kumashiro, this was written back in 2002 to give you an idea how long this has been going on. And Kevin Kumashiro explains in that book – that the purpose of queer education is to lead children into a personal crisis and then to help them resolve the crisis, in his word, productively. Because he says, and in the paragraph where he says to resolve it productively, what he actually says is that leading kids into a crisis, an emotional crisis, because you're touching them at their hopes and their dreams and their fears and their anxieties, that can bring them into crisis, teaching them that they are – Not just that there's oppression in the world, but that they contribute to that oppression and that they're a bad person. That's going to bring up a crisis. And he says sometimes that will lead people to become even more oppressive. They'll go the other way. So you have to make sure to facilitate them through the crisis. So they're inducing an identity crisis, a moral crisis. They're leading these kids On purpose, into thinking that they're terrible people who might have been born in the wrong body, who are not understood or appreciated by society, and who maybe are even secretly hated by their parents. That's what they're telling children, leading that into crisis, and then using that emotional vulnerability to resolve it productively to turn them into activists. And they're very shockingly explicit that this is what they're doing. And so I'm wearing my okay groomer (laughs) shirt that I'm not allowed to wear in Canada (laughs) because. Yet again, I find myself reading their words in context, complete, and staring and saying, what other word can I use for what's happening here? I've done that with the Drag Queen Story Hour paper where it says, you know, that it's family friendly in terms of the wink, wink, queer family you find on the street. Destroying the family, yeah. It literally says that. It literally – and I'm like, what word do I use for that Drag Queen Story Hour is, and I quote, a – Preparatory introduction to alternate modes of kinship. That's literally grooming. That's grooming in all the ways. Okay, so we have that. What word am I supposed to use? I'm not allowed to use that word. I can get in trouble. What word am I supposed? You tell me what word I'm supposed to use. Well,
0: you know what? What word I've I've recently realized that we're not allowed to use in Canada. You can't say that someone is fat.
2: Well, if you they if, are. If you
0: even, <laughs> I know. If, <laughs> if you even say it. You get attacked. They, they, they're taking our words away. And I think it's important because people feel that. They feel they can't speak anymore. I we Zach and I have a cousin recently who was just hanging out with people down in Texas. And he just said that's, he used the R word, right? He said, that's retarded. And he felt so good saying it because you're not allowed to say that anymore. You're not even yeah. allowed to express when something's stupid or make fun of it anymore. Yeah, everybody knows
2: that you don't use that word to talk about people who are disabled. Like, that's just not how that word is used. Like, (laughs) in the second somebody does, we all turn on that person. It's like using the word contains an automatic acknowledgement that you don't mean it literally.
0: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
2: Because it would be really and truly impolite and unnecessary to do it. Now, this is a little bit different because fat people are fat. And so when you use the word <laughs> fat, they actually are
0: fat. <laughs> yes, like there's
2: yes, no yes. getting around it. But this <laughs> is that fat studies and fat acceptance. Fat is, fat acceptance is a murder weapon, frankly. It really yes. is. I mean, it's a little bit of an extreme characterization. I know I'm talking to a Canadian audience. And I don't like to think things that are too extreme, but it really is because the diseases that are associated very strongly with obesity that are downstream from obesity, diabetes, heart disease, uh, vascular disease, pulmonary issues, blood clots, possibly, possibly, this is, you know, medically not clear, but maybe neurodegeneration, these things, I mean, myriad other health problems are serious issues, and they are, to tell people, like, everybody gets it. Sometimes there's a reason where and maybe they're they're physical, maybe they're medical, maybe they're psychological, where people just want to and can't seem to figure out how to lose weight. And we have we can have option for that. But the fact of the matter is that fat acceptance, while it might help that small segment of the population feel better, takes a very large segment of the population and exposes them to this idea that something that's avoidable, preventable, that's very unhealthy, is in fact okay and in fact maybe to be celebrated when that's simply not true. Um, I get the idea of accepting people or being people, but at the same time, it, this, is a, this is a complicated thing to try. I'm trying to figure out the best way to talk about this because there's a thing in medicine that a lot of people don't know. So this is going to seem like a huge diversion, but why don't we do universal cancer screenings? I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this. No, no. So there's a reason we don't, like why don't we all march into the doctor once a year and we all do our cancer screening and they put us through the machine or the tests or what blood tests, whatever it is, and find out as early as possible whether cancers are growing. Well, there are two primary reasons why. And it's a terrible idea, by the way. Universal screening is a very bad idea. Okay, so one of the reasons why is because Your body is producing cancers all the time, most of which your immune system will sort out for you. They will never become an issue. There's no reason to engage in treatment that's expensive or dangerous. There's no reason to tell somebody that they have cancer that is going to resolve before it's to the point where it needs to be medically intervened upon. But you're going to, if you do screenings, you're going to find tons of people who have. You know, you hear about false positives and true positives. Well, you're going to find there's this kind of intermediate step, which is a, a medically unimportant true positive. You're going to find lots of those. You're also going to find lots of false positives. In fact, usually the tests have a certain uh, sensitivity and a certain specificity. And what you'll actually find is that the if you universally screen for every true positive that you find, you're going to find somewhere between 50 and 100 False positives. So now you've told for every one cancer that you find early that's successful, you've told 100 people they have cancer and maybe started an on chemo. We know we so you don't do that. You allow the selection bias of people who are noticing a problem to go to the doctor the, the first step of diagnosis is, in fact, self diagnosis, even if you don't know what it is. It's, I'm having a problem. You go to the doctor, the doctor checks you out. You don't march a healthy person in there to have them do a screening for something and like that. And find cancer out, like you said, AIDS. that they might have
0: a cancer that they were going to get rid of.
2: That's right. Or, you know, it could switch over to AIDS. You're going to tell, I don't know how many people live in Canada, but tens of millions. You're going to tell hundreds of thousands of Canadians that they have AIDS when they don't.
0: And then they're going to have to go through
2: the testing again. And then even there, some of them are still going to get told that they have AIDS. Now, they've had two positive tests, even though they don't. Universal screening is a bad idea. Now, imagine if what you did was you said, I'm the new health minister, David Parker. And what I'm going to do is I don't want anybody in Alberta to have cancer. So everybody takes chemo. (laughs) And you laugh like crazy because nobody would do that. So what the schools are saying is. There are some LGBT kids in this class. And so we're going to be full blast LGBT representation, make sure they feel well, make sure everybody is exposed to a massive treatment of how you would deal with a small number of kids who have a tough time. Or same thing, not everybody has a good home life. Some people's parents are abusive. So we're going to treat all of the children as though their parents are potentially abusive. This is grotesque medical malpractice if it was in medicine and it is well known that this is outside of medical uh standards of care except all of a sudden when we're going to have to do this thing for the oppressed or whatever and the same thing is true with fat acceptance there are a small percentage of obese people who Probably in most cases, wish it was otherwise. And they try, and for whatever set of reasons, metabolic disorders, thyroid disorders, psychological issues, w- compulsion, whatever it is, they can't overcome it. And we can have a, an infinite amount of compassion for those people, but we don't have to tell the other 98.5% of the population or 99.5% of the population that it's okay to have a BMI of 50.
0: No! <laughs> We can't. It's not okay. It's no, it isn't. Like I know one of my really, really good friends. Uh, we worked in the prime minister's office together, and he was morbidly obese. And I loved him. He was one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life, and frankly, uh, one of the best people that I've ever met. And he died from a blood clot because he went on vacation and he came back. And if you're that overweight, you can get blood clots very easily. And he just died at 34 years older. It was even younger than that. These early yeah,
2: it, 30s. it happens and and, it, and it's a tragedy. And if he's in a small percentage that maybe you had a very hard time figuring out anything you could do about it, it's very, very, very sad. But a fat acceptance movement doesn't help anything here. And no. I mean, then there's just the running joke that, you know, our government hasn't been that great to us in the past We could say five years very visibly about health issues. But if you go back and you look at their treatment, you know, in the United States, we have the Food and Drug Administration basically telling us to eat garbage and don't eat healthy things because made up reasons for for decades now. It's like the food pyramid. It's like the exact opposite of what the food pyramid should be, for example, as they say. And these health ministers then come out and it's like the one from you know Canada it but it doesn't matter which one you could country after country after country they're like extraordinarily like frighteningly unhealthy people that are now your health minister for the state like or the 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 country it's like you don't even have your own life under control how in the world are you supposed to tell other people to have their lives under control um this is one of my things just more generally too is uh, you know they ask us with like the energy stuff right Oh, yeah, we don't have, you know, it's a really cold winter. You have to use energy responsibly, right? Turn down your heat, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, what? No, I can see you making an appeal to me to be responsible. Like, okay, we had a cold snap. It was bizarrely cold. It was colder than usual for longer lasting because we just got the polar vortex here. We went down to zero Fahrenheit, which in Canadian temperatures is (laughs) like negative 8 billion. (laughs) And we stayed, de- like, it's, we got colder than, I've lived here for 40 years, and it was the coldest it's ever been since I've lived here. So, we actually hit record low temperatures for at least my lifetime, the last 40 years. We we went literally below zero one morning. Yeah, Fahrenheit. we had minus,
0: minus 50 I was driving around. It was, yeah. that's, that's uh, it gets the same okay. minus 40 for everybody. And so, they sent us <laughs> an, alert. The same, an alert, we got an alert,
2: and it was like, use less energy, because, like, use minimal, because whatever, right? It's like, because... There's a huge demand on the grid. It's like, okay, I get it. We don't want the grid to fail, but you aren't handling the grid responsibly. You can't ask me to be responsible with my energy usage. If you're not being responsible with your energy production, you're using effing windmills. We don't need windmills right now. We (laughs) need diesel. We need natural gas. Exactly. Like even those things freeze. Like you need stuff. that won't free you you
0: need redundancy on those because at minus 50 it doesn't matter that's right my my truck just broke down on the side of the road and you want it's so cold yeah
2: yeah i grew up in the cold i was in in (laughs) northern new york right across from canada yeah yeah and uh my dad was telling me when you know i don't know if it's the same situation now if they've got better technology tires or not but when he was like when i was a baby in the cold winter your tires would like the pressure would go down because they're cold oh, yeah. and then the rubber would freeze that way. And so when you start driving and be like, donk, 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 <laughs> as the tires warmed up, beating against the road so that they could be round again. And like, that's what in like your car below a certain temperature it just won't start. It just won't no. go. And the same thing with these power plants though. And if they need, they, if they're not but the point was you have no authority to ask me to use energy responsibly If you're not producing energy responsibly in the first place. So you don't get to manufacture a crisis and demand I have responsible behavior and blame me for being irresponsible when you weren't being responsible in the first place. And that's what these people have really got to understand. Luckily, we're starting to peel this back. Country after country is starting to see that this stuff is like we don't have an energy problem. We have a manufactured energy problem. We don't have a food problem. We have a manufactured food problem. We don't have a problem raising our kids. We have manufactured conditions to abuse our children in the name of education.
1: Yeah, I, I have a question. Exactly I want to I want to circle back to the generative themes teaching. Who yeah. is who is instructing the teachers to
2: teach this way? Well, so the 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 word problem that I gave that example. Came from a professional development, so a, a teacher training course for people who are already teachers. So once a year, they have to go get continuing education or professional development hours. And so the facilitators of programs—I don't know what the one in Indiana was. Second Step is a very popular one here in Tennessee. We also have Wit and Wisdom. There are about a hundred brand names for the social emotional learning. Uh, programs. But the social emotional learning program coordinators are the ones that are doing this teaching. Uh, and those are by and large people who do not work for the state. They are contracted by the state. They work for nonprofits. And the nonprofits are – or sometimes for-profit companies. I think Panorama, for example, uh, might be a for-profit company. Um, but I, I'm not positive on that, so don't quote me on that. But profit, not for-profit and nonprofit companies that have, are out to bring this material to teachers. In fact, they're providing them a service. In the United States, it's very likely the same in Canada. The schools are required to do a massive amount of reporting on various aspects of the kids' social and emotional development, their non-academic competence. And that's because
0: they took over the policies and the regulations to enforce those. So the governments are enforcing these regulations that are then being met by does these organizations you're talking
2: about, right? So the the schools have to meet these these policy requirements, and then these these nonprofits are set up to go and sell a program that will check the box, but it also happens to be super activist. And you think, well, we should make something that checks the box differently. And I think that that's a loser mentality. We should get rid of the box so that it doesn't have to be checked in the first place. Uh, but the people that are teaching that are certified. Professional In that particular case, certified professional development trainers and coordinators uh, that count for the teacher's required amounts of professional development and continuing education. I would assume, but I don't know for certain, that that might also be in education schools. Um, the words generative theme are a little bit outdated. To be fair, it does show up. Uh, the Drag Queen Story Hour paper that I referenced a moment ago was published in either 20 or 21, I think, and it is said that Dry Queen Story Hour is a generative approach to education, but you very rarely run into that word now. So a lot of teachers are not hearing that term. That term was actually employed primarily starting in the 60s, uh, maybe through the 80s, and it started to fall off in its use. Um, I'm not entirely sure what language they use now and replacement of it. And maybe they don't Discovery learning.
0: They call it discovery learning. Discovery
2: learning. Yeah. You hear a
0: lot of these things- Discovery um, math. We had it in Alberta for a while. It was called discovery math. And it was that math doesn't need to be taught in the old way of like multiplication tables and addition and division. Every child needs to find their own way to understanding math. Right. And so I'll tell you right now that
2: you said every child. Anywhere you see this and I was looking through the um, school intended, uh, school superintendent's Association website earlier today and I saw it and they actually put it in italics. Every time they say we want to you know create better education or more equitable education or whatever for all students and they put <laughs> they put all in italics. like it's a dead giveaway. When they say all, you have to remember that their default assumption is that there are power dynamics in play that cheat some kids and not others. The privileged kids are not being cheated. And the oppressed kids are being cheated. So when they say to help all kids or to help every student, what they actually mean is there's a subset that are the oppressed kids who are not being served. So we're going to redistribute all the resources to help them. And they actually will put the word all in italics sometimes apparently to really stress that what they mean is that they're they're doing so, – is like they're doing something that isn't what it sounds like they're doing. Uh, but they can't help themselves but to stress it. Like, look at this. It's part. Like,
0: it's like the health minister. They they have to pick the most unhealthy person. Like that Hoffman lady that that I'm getting roasted on the internet about. She was the health minister of Alberta under the communists when they had their four years in power. Yeah, she was well. the health minister. Yeah, well that's that, that, that's just another
2: case in point. Um, right, is and it I'm they sure they that want what she to wanted to do to our do,
0: faces? They want to lie to our faces.
2: Well, she wanted to create better health outcomes for all Canadians. And you see it right <laughs> away. So now we have to talk about the racial social determinants of health and we have to do CRT through public health and through food systems and through medicine. It's immediate as soon as we have to think about the the health of all Canadians. So we have to think about the LGBTQ Canadians who are not being served properly by uh, Daniel Smith trying to protect children from, I'm not even supposed to call it grooming, but I keep calling it cult grooming because I don't know what inducing personality crises and then resolving them in your favor. I don't know what word to use for that because I know another word. Instead of grooming, let's call it trauma bonding. Because it is trauma, but what do you, Why? Who does trauma bonding? Well, it turns out psychopaths, narcissists, and cult leaders are the only people who do trauma bonding. It is a that that's what they're that's literally what they're doing. You don't like those terms? Let's go to Mao Zedong's terms: ideological remolding. That was his term, or sometimes ideological transformation. Now that that's two translations for the same thing, and I don't remember the Chinese. Uh, For ideological remolding, the usual translation into English is not ideological remolding, but thought reform, which we also use the word brainwashing for. But his words were ideological remolding or ideological transformation. Now, think of how many times you read the woke literature and it talks about transforming, transforming, transforming. This is a transformative approach to education. Ideological transformation was literally what Mao called his program in prisons and in schools. And when I say prisons, I mean gulags, You know, brainwashing, uh, re-education Camps. prisons. But it's so that we can have the best outcomes for all Canadians. And this yeah. is the way that they use their language, and they sound okay, but they're saying something that everybody – it should make the hair on the back of your neck stand up when you hear
0: these words. Well, uh, the, But isn't the, it interesting that they – oh, go ahead, Zach.
1: The language is I – th- I think – I think for the sake of of actually understanding what's happening we have to give them benefit or, or uh, we have to we have to appreciate where they've gotten things right the language is very good the language sounds nice and what the language does is it employs the work and the power of a lot of well-meaning people who who th- who think to themselves because they just came back from some you know education conference about making sure everyone feels safe in their classroom and they go. They they walk into their classroom and they say, "Well, I want kids to feel safe. This sounds like a good idea. I want all yeah. kids to feel safe in my classroom." But there is a, but there is something behind those those individuals who are pawns that are actually orchestrating what's happening in the classrooms. What are what do you think are their motivations? So let's let's remove the teacher from the equation for now, because the because maybe the teacher has, um, maybe the teacher has ill motives, but I think in many cases the teachers don't. I think they just want to do the best job they can. Again, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, but they've been educated themselves. So uh-huh. what, is, what is the motivation of the people one step up from the ones actually dealing with the children? Why are they trying to de- destabilize youth?
2: Well, let me read to you first of all, because I want people to understand that. Well, you are absolutely right. The point of contact in the classroom is sometimes an activist, and it's very often somebody who's either been brainwashed first themselves, or sucked into the program, or just has to do it, whether they agree with it or not, to some degree. But I want to make it clear that the people a step up from that know exactly what they're doing. So I'm going to actually read a couple of sentences across. It's, I'm, you know, you have to imagine the the spacing because it goes across. The beginning of one paragraph, then the beginning of the next paragraph, and then the end. And I'm not going to read all the stuff in the middle, but it spans two paragraphs. So this is about – this is Drag Queen Story Hour, uh, and it's the creators of Drag Queen Story Hour writing – the or some of them writing this paper about bringing – why are they bringing Drag Queen Story Hour into classrooms? And they say – Finally, it is often assumed that the primary pedagogical goal of queer education should be to increase empathy toward LGBT people. So pedagogical goal means educational purpose, right? So the, they, they explicitly said there, it is often assumed that the main reason we're doing this is to increase empathy toward LGBT people. The next sentence says, while this premise has some merit, and then they go on to criticize it for the rest of the paragraph. It has some merit. And then the next paragraph really underlines it. It begins by saying it is undeniable. The drag queen's story hour participates in many of these tropes of empathy from the marketing language the program uses to its selection of books. And they say much of this is done strategically in order to justify its educational value. And then they say, however, we have other purposes for it. And at the end of the paragraph – They say, that is, drag is an imaginative and creative process. It is grounded in building character, both in the sense of constructing a persona and in better understanding one's own relations to others. This approach can support students in finding the unique or queer aspects of themselves rather than attempting to understand what it is like to be LGBT. So it's not in question in any way whatsoever whether they know That their purpose is not the thing they tell people the purpose is. It is not about creating empathy and understanding for LGBT people. It couldn't be more clear. That's literally what they called the marketing strategy to justify its inclusion in the first place. What did they say the purpose is? It's to lead children to discover that they might, in fact, be queer themselves. But queer is an activist identity. It's not an essential identity. No child is born queer. You might be born gay. You, we don't know how that works for You can't be sure. born
0: queer. You can't. You be cannot born queer, but be <laughs> born
2: queer. It's a political stance. I could read you the quotes from that too, um, from the guy who literally defined queer in the first. His name is uh, his name. His name is um, David Halperin, and he wrote a book in 1995 called Saint Foucault, which is a horrifying book, in fact, to read, where he's holding up Michel Foucault as though he should be treated as a saint, um, and he defines queer. Uh, in this book, as an identity without an essence, and let me just give you a sense of what he actually says very, very clearly.
0: <laughs> oh, man.
2: Unlike gay identity, he says, unlike gay identity, which through deliberately, Uh, Sorry, which, though deliberately proclaimed in an act of affirmation, is nonetheless rooted in the positive fact of homosexual object choice. So what he said there, that's a lot of fancy words. He's saying queer is unlike gay identity, and he says that gay identity is rooted in a positive fact about reality. He then says, unlike gay identity, queer identity need not be grounded in any positive truth or in any stable reality. As the very word implies, queer does not name some natural kind or refer to some determinate object. It acquires its meaning from its oppositional relation to the norm. Queer is by definition whatever is at odds with the normal, the legitimate, the dominant. There is nothing in particular to which it necessarily refers. It is an identity without an essence. So he's already said that it doesn't even refer to something real. So how could you be born that way? But then he puts the punch to it. Queer then demarcates not a positivity, in other words, something in reality, but a positionality vis-a-vis the normative. That means queer is not an essential part of your identity. It's an identity without an essence, he said, in fact. It is, in fact, a political stance against the normal, the legitimate, and the dominant. How can you be born against the legitimate
0: <laughs> or or the norm? Being born is about as normal as it can get. It,
2: it turns out, one hundred percent of human beings, even Jesus, was born. We were born, <laughs> exactly. All of them. All of, every, every single, single one. one. <laughs> no person ever rose up out of a mud puddle. No, never. Every <laughs> single person. There is nothing more normal into the human path to existence than being born. It's 100%. Nobody misses it. You you cannot be born queer by definition. Queer is a political stance against normalcy. It is not, or in legitimacy, actually, it is not an essential identity. So when they, what are these people doing when they say that they want to lead kids to believe they're queer instead of in the name of increasing empathy for lgbt what they're actually saying is we're going to sell this to you by saying it's about increasing empathy for lgbt but what we're really doing is leading your children into an identity crisis so they come out as political activists that's because we because we want we want a rainbow guard they want a rainbow guard that's exactly what they want and it's in i mean they don't piece the P- two paragraphs together back to back, but it's not hard to put them together back to back and see that that is. there's no other interpretation for what they're doing. So the people behind the front line on the, in the classroom and some of the people on the front line in the classroom, but it's relatively small number, the people a step back, these people that are setting up the programs to coordinate teaching teachers to do this or the people behind them that are paying them to do this. Know what they're doing, and what they are doing is using education as an excuse to lead children into activism and political positions that they cannot possibly be born with and to confuse those political positions with who they are, which is fundamentally evil.
0: Identity and politics. It
2: is identity politics, which is to, con- to to confuse your politics with who you are and then to go fight for them like that they are a matter of who they are. This is why it probably just happened in Canada. I know it's happening somewhere else. I just saw it the other day. I forgot what it is. It's like, oh, it was in Florida because somewhere Rhonda Santa said something about like can't force people to use their pronouns or something like that. Uh, no one on driver's licenses. They can't have their pronouns on drive or something. <laughs> <laughs> and so they went to the, to the Department of Motor Vehicles with f- paper tombstones and laid down I on the steps that. and pretended they I were dead. I saw that. <laughs> because they've yeah. been, they've been, who they are has been killed by the fact that they can't put their non-binary identity on their driver's license. In other words, they've confused their political stance vis-a-vis normality with who they are so that if they don't get their political way, you've committed a genocide against them. You've murdered them. And this is the rhetoric that they then launch these poor broken and frankly uh, idiotic young people out into the world to go repeat, and people don't know how to respond to it, don't know what to do with it. The kids are having a total existential crisis in the moment if you try to resist them. And so what are the people a step behind doing? That. They are producing that. And I'm not going to say – I can't say which person does and which person doesn't know exactly what they're doing. But I can say some of them do. Some of them know exactly what they're doing. That's why it's so important to think of this as a cult, because in a cult, the person in charge of the cult knows what's going on. Then he has like a group around him that makes it happen. Then there's a whole bunch of people who are really, really into the cult. And then there's a whole bunch of people who are in the cult that are being shepherded around and probably extorted by the cult leadership. And you have these different layers of knowing what in the world's going on. Most of the people in the cult have no idea what's going on. They're just... In the cult, and they buy into it, and they repeat it, and they defend it from other people on the outside, and it's important to them socially and emotionally. But then the next layer up has an intellectual commitment. Oh yeah, the teacher's the wisest guy I've ever heard. He said all this stuff. But at the top, it's a guy literally like I need your daughters. He knows exactly what you. I need your bank accounts, and I need your daughters, and he knows exactly what he's after. And nobody else in the cult is aware of it at all. But they're out on the street corner handing out leaflets every Saturday. To try to get people to join it and you know, pick them up in a, a van marked free candy and take them off to to Candyland. There are some people who know exactly what they're doing in other words, as we go from the classroom, few on average. We go up a level to the trainers, more but not all. We go up a level above that to the coordinators of these nonprofits, far more. But not everybody. I actually have a friend who sat down and had lunch with the coordinator of Castle, which is the collaborative for academic social and emotional learning, the main SEL provider in North America. And this this lady was one of the high level executives of Castle and he like kind of grilled her on what's going on there. and she didn't have the slightest idea. She's either the best actress in the world or she had no idea. And she just thinks she's helping kids get their emotional stuff squared away. So even at the higher levels, you have some people who are just totally on the Kool Aid. Somebody's writing a check. You think George Soros, for example, believes a damn word of any of this? No. But does he dump billions of dollars into it?
0: Yes. Because he thinks he knows he's what's a god. Going on. Literally, as you he pointed out to me the other day, he, he literally, literally thinks he's a god. And I think what this comes down to, Zach and it's important to understand, is the key that James gave me that unlocked all of this for me. And I won't do that for everybody because not everyone studied theology like I have, but this is Gnosticism. And maybe mm-hmm. explain that to, to Zach, and then we can conclude there because I don't want to take too much more of your time. But yeah, yeah, I think that's but, that's, that's no, the that's best important. way to summarize it because, because that's, that's what it's cult a it gnostic is. cult. It's a gnostic cult. Exactly. Yeah, so gnosticism is
2: really a religious disposition in a in a very real sense that reality is unsatisfying, that there must be more hidden behind the the, the veil of reality. The way it was in the first century Christian Gnostic cults, which it's older than them. It's, a, it's like a parasite religion that latches onto other belief systems and twists around their meanings to create a cult off the side of it. So, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be Chinese, it could be Buddhism, it could be, you know, one of the ancient, you know, Egyptian religions or whatever. It's It could be Christianity, it could be Judaism, it could be science, it could be philosophy. It'll latch on and twist the meanings as though there's a secret hidden meaning that only they know. and But in the ancient Christian world, first century, second century, there were a number of these cults, the Valentinian cult, the Sethian cult, the Manichian cult, and so on. What it did was it came along, and in one way or another, it said the first thing you need to understand is that the world is split into two. There's the spirit world, and there's the material world. And the reality is so the first piece of secret knowledge you get, your first piece of consciousness that you get is you're actually not your material form. You're actually spirit. And in fact, you are imprisoned in your material form. In those first century cults, what it said was that the character in the book of Genesis is misinterpreted. It is not God that created the world. That is a demiurge, which comes from the Greek demiurgos, which means builder, the builder of the world. And what he was actually doing was building the world that humanity would be imprisoned in a mortal body within. He was not God. He's a jailer. He's a prison builder and warden. And so he created it to be really nice at first. Think of the Matrix. The first version, we made it a utopia, but human psychology couldn't handle it and rejected it. So then we made it like the peak of your civilization, 1994, or whatever it happens to be. Same story, exactly. At first, the Demiurge built a perfect world called Eden, But the humans rejected it. Their psychology couldn't handle it. They wanted to be like God. So they ate from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so the demiurge, not God, the demiurge is like, "Uh uh-oh, gonna figure it out. Kick them out. And so he turns it into hell on earth. You're gonna work by the toil of your brow. You're gonna sweat. You're gonna have painful childbirth. You're gonna suffer indignities, disease, and the wages of your sin are death. And so this is where you're stuck now. But the truth is, that's all fake because there's a real God and none of us are separate from God because God is actually everything. We're all fundamentally connected to God and our material form is fallen and rotten and imprisons us in the world. So the second idea of Gnosticism is that we exist in a prison of being. But if you know the truth, you can escape that at least within your mind. So first you have to escape that psychologically then you force your material body to escape it with to match to your corrupted psychology. In other words, you die. Or in trans, you try to transform your body to match your soul that you think you were born with that got put into the wrong body. And then the you have place.
0: a dead name.
2: And you have a dead name. And you have a new name. And it's a cycle of death and rebirth to be born, reborn on the side of the oppressed. The language is so clear through all of their writing. In fact, Paulo Freire wrote a book called um, shoot, which one was this called? He's got a million of them that are like the pedagogy of this, the pedagogy of that. This one's the pedagogy of freedom, I think. And he actually says his method of education is, and I quote, the Gnostic cycle, like seven times. <laughs> it's a little hard to deny at that point. but <laughs> Seven <laughs> times? Unbelievable. Like seven times in the book, he says it's the Gnostic cycle. And it's only like 80-something pages. It's a very short book. It's like it's a main theme. It comes up like every 10 or 12 pages. But um, the idea is that you can receive secret knowledge of who you really are, which is a spiritual being that is not confined by the imprisoning forces of the material world. And by, th- by that knowledge, you can save yourself from the torments of the material world and escape. What happened in the, um, I guess, Early 1800s, late 1700s was a – late 1700s more was a – what we might call a doctrine of social Gnosticism came into being in Europe. This is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, Schiller, Schelling, Hegel, eventually Marx. And the idea is that we're trapped not in a world constructed by the evil Demiurge. That's old superstitious nonsense. We're trapped instead. We're actually perfectly human entities. Whatever that means, we have a true human essence that truly lives a full human life, but we're trapped by the strictures of society or economics or the ideas of the time, the prevailing philosophers oppressors. Philosophy. And that's right. And so in a word, it becomes oppressors. So the bourgeois class for Karl Marx acts as the demiurge that imprisons the proletariat class. They're imprisoned on bourgeois values, which therefore have to be overthrown. They have to be… Abolished. They have to be destroyed. Well, we have this exact same mentality in CRT. The white people created race so they could impose whiteness on society and impose systemic racism to maintain their advantage. They're the gods, the demiurge, and to make it so that the poor people of color, in particular black people, have to live by the toil of their back and the sweat of their brow and have painful childbirth and blah, blah, blah. It's the same creation myth it's an identical creation myth and it's systemic racism that the white people create in order to to enforce this this power dynamic Marx it was economic conditions um queer theory it's the concept of normalcy and we could just go right down the line so what is queer Queer is a positionality of opposition to normality which is the belief structure that oppresses queer people in other words there are certain people who have defined themselves, unjustly to be normal. Everybody else is queer. And you're going to rail against that because you have the secret hidden knowledge of who you really are, which is a queer person. In fact, all people are queer, but most people are just in denial of finding that out because it gives them power, privilege, and status. This is literally the Gnostic religion reconceived in terms of identity politics and economic politics and just social politics. This is um, Rousseau's concept of the, the social contract. He's like, man is born free, but everywhere he's in chains. We are free. We could live as free as, the, as what he called the savages. We could live our free human expression. But unfortunately, we have to be logical. We have to be reasonable. We have to be thoughtful. We have to be polite. We have to dress correctly to be citizens. So citizenship and puts duties this is upon us. a social
0: contract.
2: Through a social contract. But does Rousseau want to say, let's go all be savages in the jungle? No, he doesn't. He's like, I really like some of the benefits to the city. We've got to figure out how to change man so that he can live his sincere, savage life, but be made to still inhabit cities. That's literally what it was. This is Gnosticism. There's a secret knowledge that society itself, the rules, imprison us. If we could just know when to break the rules, then we get to be free. And if you look at everything that's followed since, you can see this religion again and again. So it's a cult religion, and this is what they're actually inducing people into. Um, is a bit longer than I meant to do but I think it's pretty thorough
0: no I think you did a, a phenomenal job and I recommend it. when is your book coming out because I'm going to recommend that I'm going to buy a bunch for, and we're going to sell them at uh, Take Back Alberta Beatings because you're just so articulate on this but when does that book come out
2: okay so it's a book about queer theory and we are in the year 2024 which ends in four which means we get to have a leap day this year which is the queerest day on the calendar so it comes out on leap day <laughs>
0: Yes, nice, nice. You do <laughs> always get to publish poetic. a book about queer That's poetic. Theory <laughs> that
2: that hit poetic. number one in gay studies on Amazon already. <laughs> is there is there a pre-order link? Is there what? Sorry? Is there a, a pre-order, pre-order link? link? There is, yeah. I mean, it's on all of your, probably or maybe most of, I'll say, your favorite booksellers and certainly ones that make Jeff Bezos very rich. Um <laughs> <laughs> currently on the jeff bezos one there is only a pre-order link to uh, the ebook but there it will but it's pre-order available in print on other places so that's coming that's a, that's amazon's timing not ours we don't get to decide when they decide to put the button up there but um it will be available in all the formats i personally read the audiobook rather than the author and um so all the formats will be available uh, the audiobook, as usual, might be a little bit delayed after the release of the the print and electronic versions because it turns out we're making them ourselves, and it's a lot of work to make an audiobook—an yeah, absurd I amount of totally work. Can only
0: imagine. Oh man!
2: Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> I'm looking at the camera with this. Yes, with this. I look. Uh, you, they're for the dead. His eyes audiobooks. are dead when he looked at that. <laughs> I am so happy that people want the material and they can consume the material that, that way. And I genuinely am grateful to people <laughs> that pick up and use audiobooks. But this dang <laughs> that you make me produce one. Because they're so, what? I mean, they are, they are. They are miles harder to produce yeah. than oh. print. You're, uh, you're also working on another book. I am. That's the Mao book. So I decided. I was shamed and I decided that I wasn't working hard enough uh, a few weeks ago. So I decided it's time to write down my thoughts about how woke and all the related stuff, COVID, anti-maga, like the whole thing. How is this all actually Mao Zedong thought? And so I'm working on a book. Provisional title is uh, Maoism with American Characteristics
0: where I lay out how
2: Mao worked. Like, what was Mao's formulas, like, step by step, chapter after chapter, developing it, and then just comparing it to both the woke literature and the neo-Marxist literature kind of intervening in between. And the case is so unbelievably overwhelming that so far in my first draft, which I'm about three quarters of the way through the first draft, that even I'm like, whoa, I got to stop. I got to, like, take a step back here. This is too, it's too tight. It's, it's really unbelievable um, how clear it is. Uh, so I don't know when, maybe this fall, I can have that one ready. Uh, I got busy again, so I've been traveling. If you can so have it done
0: to. by June, I think uh, most people don't know, but we're looking to have you out here to do more talks in June of next of this year. So
2: Not to disappoint my <laughs> Canadians, but the <laughs> fact is that I will probably have the text done but not be ready to publish it by then right um, because enough. there's the first draft and there's the editing and then there's the audiobook and <laughs> I was going to make an audiobook chuck
1: but you made it for me <laughs>
2: <laughs> no there's there there's a lot of stuff like from with the querying of the American child we were optimistic to be able to get it out by leap day and we had the final like final final manuscript by the second week of November so there's There's a process that takes Mm -hmm. some time to do all of the, like, you wouldn't even believe it. Like if you decide you want to move some things around, I want to add like a sentence because it makes a really important point that I thought of one night while I'm laying in bed. And it adds a single piece of paper to the width of the book. You now have to redesign the cover because it's a little (laughs) bit different. I'm not kidding. And it's that freaking precise sometimes, um... And it's there's a lot because what we'll do is we'll we'll produce a a mock-up and we'll get the physical copy and look through it and read it in physical to make sure everything like all the words lined up in the right places that the the, it's called the gutter down the middle of the book is the right width like it's a lot of stuff to make sure that the print resolution on the cover is good there's a lot that goes into it so. I probably will try to finish the very first draft of this book this week. I've got four chapters left to write. What happens is I keep needing to add more chapters because <laughs> there's just so many things that actually happened.
0: It's it's my favorite uh, topic that you talked about when you were in Alberta. It's You're so knowledgeable on it, and it's so applicable. It just it explains to people what's going on.
2: Well, as a result of writing this book and the way that I've been organizing the information, David, I'll tell you that I am about... 10 times as articulate in being able to express the Maoist mechanism. And so that's what I'll probably be doing when I come to Alberta, if if we set that up, because it's probably what I'll be talking about most of the places that I go this year, because it's just so clarifying.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm pumped. I've, I had the opportunity of reading a, a draft of the, the queering of the American child and I loved it. So it's easy to read. I love read. what you're doing. It's a great read. It's a great read. It's 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 actually, uh, the best part of it is that he explains it in a way that people like you and I couldn't because he's able to take it down to that level, which is awesome. Yeah,
2: he said yeah. that he wrote it imagining that his blue-collar dad had to read through every chapter, and under- every yeah. paragraph, and understand it.
0: It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's very well written. So kudos to him as well. Anyway, I know Zach has to go. I'm getting phone calls. I know you have, you're a busy man. (laughs) I'm sure something caught on fire by now. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us for our first episode of The Take Back. And I feel like you played an outsized role in helping save kids in Canada. So thank you for that.
2: Well, let's do it. it. It
0: matters.